0: Let's talk about the Ukraine crisis. On February 24, 2021, Ukrainian President Zelensky officially announced the severance of diplomatic relations with Russia, and the two countries entered a hostile state. Within a day, a Russian army of 190,000 troops took the mountainous path and attacked numerous military facilities in the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv. The president openly declared the issuance of powerful weapons to all willing citizens to defend their homeland whether you like to see another war starting or not. This is certainly not the first war to occur in the 21st century, and it's not even the first war related to Russia in this century. In 2008, on August 1st, Georgia erupted in civil war, and a week later, on the same day as the Beijing Olympics opening ceremony, which was August 8th, the Russo-Georgian War began. From various angles, the war 14 years ago shares similarities with the current Ukraine crisis. The background for both was the expansion of NATO to the east, and both involved regions where ethnic Russians formed the majority. So, how did the conflict end back then? On August 8, 2008, Russian forces invaded Georgia and engaged in combat for several days, capturing multiple military bases. International mediation efforts began, and a ceasefire agreement was reached on August 15 to 16. On August 18, 2008, Russian troops started withdrawing and eventually, Georgia lost a disputed territory. Thousands of casualties occurred on both sides. The conflict came to an end after about a month. Based on the current situation, this might be the most likely way for the Ukraine crisis to conclude. However, our understanding shouldn't stop here. In the following segments, I'd like to help you organize a few key points worth understanding. First, How did the conflict between Ukraine and Russia begin? And how do Western countries view this conflict? In this episode, we'll summarize historical information from recent decades and the research reports published by Western think tanks in the past few months to clarify these two questions. Firstly, let's start with history. I believe that most of you might wonder when hearing this news, aren't Russia and Ukraine both former Soviet Union members? Moreover, they share similar languages and cultures. How could they end up in armed conflict? That's a reasonable question, if you don't have a deep understanding of the geopolitical confrontation in Europe. Just think about the Korean Peninsula. These two countries, under the background of great power competition, are so similar in language and culture, yet they engage in such intense conflicts. It's no different when a superpower like Russia is involved. However, explaining the millennia of development history of Slavic nations will require several episodes, let's save that for later. For now, let me help you quickly understand the primary cause of this conflict. We have to start with Ukraine's independence. To understand Ukraine, you first need to know that the land it occupies has a history of over a thousand years. However, as a nation, Ukraine is relatively young, with only 31 years of history. In 1654, due to shared Eastern Orthodox identity and cultural ties, Ukraine and Russia formally merged. However, interference from Poland's Catholic influence caused tensions. For the next 337 years, Ukraine was closely tied to the Russian Empire. In 1917, the Russian Empire was impacted by World War I and Ukraine briefly gained independence for six months with support from Germany. However, it surrendered and returned to Russian rule after Germany's defeat. Subsequently, both Ukraine and Russia became founding members of the Soviet Union. During World War II, Hitler occupied Ukraine entirely But two years later, the Soviet Union reclaimed it. The two nations remained closely bound until the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991. On August 24, 1991, Ukraine's government issued a declaration of independence, formally breaking away from the Soviet Union and changing its name to the Republic of Ukraine. From that day, Ukraine has had a history of only 30 years. But does Russia like this situation? Let's take a look at Russian President Putin's speech from three days ago on February 21st. He stated, This is how President Putin's speech began. You can find the complete English translation of Putin's speech, which contains nearly 10,000 words, on the Internet. After reading it, my impression is that Russia wants to swallow the entire Ukraine. Of course, the initial asking price is always high as it allows for negotiation. Ultimately, The result may be splitting the country in half. Why do I say that? If you look at a map of Ukraine, you'll see a major river running through it. The Dnieper River. The European and more western parts of Ukraine emphasize their European origins, while the eastern part is closer to Russia. This dual ethnic identity attribute emerged after Ukraine's independence, created by a government elected by the people. The Ukrainian government has always oscillated between pro-Western and pro-Russian stances and the fundamental reason for this lies in Ukraine's history. At this point, you might find it a bit strange. After all, Ukraine and Russia were part of the same country for a long time in history. Russia has always had a strong influence on Ukraine. So why did Ukraine declare independence in 1991? To understand this, we need to go back to the Yalta Conference in early 1945. The outcome of this conference in a small meeting room was critical for the establishment of the United Nations. As the end of World War II approached, Nazi Germany was defeated and the Soviet Union had substantial influence and power. Thus, US President Roosevelt made many key concessions to ensure Soviet Union's participation in the United Nations. One of those concessions was giving the Soviet Union veto power, which meant they could veto any UN decision. Russia, with its inherited privileges from the Soviet Union, did not need to consider dealing with the United Nations when dealing with foreign matters. It's worth noting that Ukraine was also within the United Nations because of its independent status, and for many years both Russia and Ukraine were part of the United Nations. Due to their status as independent countries, Russia did not have complete control over Ukraine's international voice. Fast forward to 1991 and Ukraine became independent which was recognized by Western countries. At the time, Russia was going through a tough period after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which can be understood. However, would other countries recognize it? In 1996, Ukraine completely denuclearized, securing international recognition. Many people now say that if Ukraine had not declared independence back then, it could have ended up differently. But think about it. In the late 1990s, Ukraine was still impoverished and couldn't even feed itself. Moreover, it had a substantial number of nuclear weapons. And the EU and the US wouldn't have just stood by and watched a nation with thousands of nuclear warheads. Would Ukraine have become a nuclear power and would Russia have acted only now? These questions are more complex than they might seem. But here comes the question. Why did Russia decide to take action against Ukraine now, given that Ukraine had already abandoned its nuclear weapons nearly 16 years ago? Well, This leads us to the issue of NATO's eastward expansion. In late 2013, pro-Western forces within Ukraine launched the Euromaiden movement, which aimed to bring Ukraine closer to the European Union. This movement led to the downfall of President Yanukovych in February 2014. On February 23, 2014, Ukraine passed a law making Ukrainian the sole official language, which angered the Russian-speaking populations in the eastern and southern regions of Ukraine. In response, Crimea held an independence referendum and decided to join Russia. On March 7, 2014, Russia's federal parliament approved Crimea's request to rejoin Russia. The United Nations General Assembly voted on March 27, 2014, with 100 votes in favor, 11 against, and 58 abstentions. But the resolution affirming Ukraine's territorial integrity was non-binding. Following Crimea's independence referendum, Eastern Ukraine's Donbass region also erupted in a separatist movement, leading to the Ukrainian internal conflict. Eventually, under the Minsk agreements, mediated by France and Germany, an agreement was reached on September 5, 2014. This agreement essentially recognized autonomy for the majority Russian-speaking regions in eastern Ukraine, while Russia did not force Ukraine to recognize these regions' independence. However, it was understood that this was a temporary compromise both sides wanted to bide their time. Ukraine aimed to gain security guarantees by delaying, and Russia was waiting for the right moment to acquire more territory. Subsequently, in 2015, a new Minsk agreement was signed. But as you can see from the analysis above, it didn't really resolve the issues. It was just another delay tactic. Now, let's fast forward to February 21st, 2022 when Russian President Putin announced the recognition of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics in eastern Ukraine as independent countries. Many mainstream media outlets reported this as just a signal because it meant tearing up the ceasefire agreement of the past seven years. So why didn't they just follow the agreement? The answer is straightforward. Neither Russia nor Ukraine wanted to comply. In reality, the interests of major powers are complex and completely tearing up these agreements is difficult. So, there are always negotiations and conflicts. Take natural gas trade, for example. Since the early 21st century, about a quarter of the natural gas used by the European Union to heat water and brew coffee comes from Russia, transported through pipelines that pass through Ukraine. This gas pipeline network is crucial, especially for Germany, where 80% of its gas exports transit through Ukraine. In negotiations, Russia often uses the gas supply as leverage. For instance, in February 2018, the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce's arbitration tribunal ruled that Russia's Gazprom had not delivered the required amount of gas to Ukraine and it awarded Ukraine $4.63 billion in compensation. However, Gazprom owed Ukraine $2.56 billion for overpayment. But since Ukraine still owed money, Gazprom stated that it wouldn't comply with the arbitration ruling. Ukraine threatened to seize Gazprom's assets in its territory the dispute escalated over a year until an agreement was reached with Ukraine receiving compensation and Gazprom continuing gas supplies. However, it illustrates the complex interactions between Russia, the EU and the US. In terms of strategy, the US and the EU are aligned in the NATO camp, which is seen as a common interest against Russia. Economically, they want to diversify gas supplies to reduce dependence on Russia, while Russia wants to sell more gas and use it as leverage. So. When we look at the attitudes of the US, EU and Russia towards these gas pipelines we see a complex competition. In strategic terms, the US and the EU both have an interest in containing Russia's expansion, especially NATO's eastward expansion. In 2004, the three Baltic states and later Romania, Bulgaria and Slovakia completely blocked Russia in the Baltic and Black Sea areas. By looking at the map, and considering Ukraine's pro-Western stance since 2013, you can understand the root cause of the conflict. This means that if Ukraine becomes a NATO member, Russia would lose its buffer zone that has existed for the past 30 years. All the pressure would be on Russia. This is why the New Minsk agreement wasn't followed. Russia's current bottom line seems to be that it can allow Ukraine's Western regions to remain clear But the eastern regions must remain under Russian influence to ensure a strategic buffer zone between Russia and the West. However, this agreement is unacceptable to Ukraine, as it would mean a loss of sovereignty and economic hardship, particularly in the economically developed eastern regions. So it's a matter of conflicting national interests. In recent days, I've been managing switches that seem to change with the political winds. When Germany wants to express its discontent with the United States, it's like a traffic light at this intersection. Similarly, when Germany is unhappy with Russia's attitude, it's as if this pipeline doesn't comply with agricultural regulations. It's incredibly sophisticated and high-tech. So on February 22nd, 2022, Germany announced the suspension of the certification process for the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. This provides some basic background to the situation. Now let's look at what developments might follow. Of course, it's impossible to predict with certainty in the real world, but we can gain some insights from others' predictions. For example, why is the United States taking such a soft stance in this conflict? To answer this question, let's refer to a report from the RAND Corporation, a US think tank, released on November 18th of the previous year. This report, published about 100 days ago, accurately reflects the current situation. It suggests that the U.S. government should aim to persuade and possibly compromise because it's unlikely that the U.S. can convince Russia to yield. If Putin is determined to proceed, economic sanctions alone won't be effective. So the U.S. is unlikely to intervene directly in Ukraine at this point. It's best for the U.S. government to ensure that Ukraine fulfills its agreements, as failure to do so could lead to more significant disasters. In essence, this report suggests that the U.S. should adopt a realistic approach, considering that accepting the reality of eastern Ukraine slipping out of control may be the most suitable strategy at this stage from the perspective of U.S. think tanks. This has been a consistent approach taken by the United States. If you want to speculate about what the U.S. is currently doing behind the scenes, you can refer to this report. However, this report doesn't believe that Russia is inclined to take military action. Why? Because at the time of its publication about three months ago, most Western mainstream media believed that Russia had many concerns and was unlikely to take military action. But why would they say that? Let's consider an official report from the Russian International Affairs Council, a Russian think tank, issued on November 25th, 2021. This think tank is essentially a platform for Russian foreign policy discussions and is currently chaired by Igor Ivanov, a former Russian foreign minister. In this report, they make a hypothetical prediction that Russia's military might launch simultaneous attacks on multiple fronts in Ukraine. However, the report argues that Russia is unlikely to take such actions. It provides several reasons, such as Ukraine's size, which is not comparable to the 2008 Georgia conflict. The report suggests that a war in Ukraine is unlikely to end quickly. While defeating the Ukrainian military might be relatively easy, Achieving stable and complete occupation is challenging. The worst case scenario is that Ukraine becomes divided, much like when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. The report emphasizes that Russia would face comprehensive international sanctions, including frozen bank accounts, halted energy trade and disruptions to global trade. If the war drags on, energy trade and all international commerce could be prohibited. The report also considers the sentiments of the Russian population, which may not favour a war in the current economic situation. There are indications that not all Russians support this war, and public opinion surveys conducted by Russian media seem to confirm this. Additionally, the report highlights the complexities of ethnic identities and divisions within Ukraine, suggesting that a war could lead to an unstable and fragmented New Holland rather than a clear-cut victory for Russia. After so many bloody conflicts between 2015 and 2021, the report suggests that the population in eastern Ukraine may have shifted away from identifying with Russia. The report concludes by questioning whether it's in Russia's interest to further destabilize Ukraine and intensify economic hardships. Considering that most of the points mentioned in this report align with the current situation, it's worth noting that Putin is likely well aware of these factors when making his decision to go to war. Understanding these factors may help us speculate about when and why he might choose to de-escalate. So, what are the reasons for Putin's decision to go to war? Let's examine a report from the Royal Institute of International Affairs, also known as Chatham House, in the UK, published on November 30th, 2021. This report delves into the policy pathways of France and Germany regarding Russia. In essence, It discusses the dynamics of the European Union's approach to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. To put it simply, after Russia reclaimed Crimea, the United States swiftly pushed for sanctions against Russia. However, the EU had its own considerations and didn't fully align with the US. The report mentions that this divergence in approach played a role in creating the Normandy format, which facilitated discussions between Russia, Ukraine and France and Germany, leading to the Minsk agreements. However, the report criticizes the Minsk agreements due to their resemblance to the Munich Agreement of 1938. While the US tried to participate in these talks, France and Germany were not enthusiastic about US involvement. This is one reason why the agreements have not made much progress. According to this report's analysis, if Russia aims for a resolution that secures its interest in eastern Ukraine, it may need to consider various scenarios, including diplomatic negotiations. To ensure that the Minsk agreements are executed, it doesn't necessarily require a full-scale war. The key is to reach an agreement with all parties involved. However, Russia's primary concern is NATO expansion, which became a pressing issue when this month was on the verge of joining NATO back in 2008. This commitment to absorb Ukraine as a NATO member would have been extremely detrimental to Russia, and it had to be addressed. But when it comes to matters of this magnitude, It's not just about what France and Germany say. The United States' stance matters as well. Russia needs a commitment from the United States, and this is not just my opinion. In late November 2021, the Russian Foreign Ministry publicly released a letter from Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov to the Foreign Ministers of France and Germany. The contents of this letter indicated Russia's position in the Normandy format talks. It's quite rare for diplomatic correspondence of this nature to be made public. Moreover, in October 2020, the German Council on Foreign Relations released a report on the challenges facing the new German government. This report made it clear that Russia believed the situation in Ukraine was changing and therefore Russia's strategic objectives had evolved. Now, Russia's goal is to prevent NATO from expanding further, specifically by securing a commitment from the United States that NATO will not enlarge and that weapons will stop flowing to Ukraine this German think tank's report likely sheds light on the true reasons behind Putin's actions. Shortly after the report was published on December 21, 2021, Putin publicly stated his willingness to sign a legally binding treaty with the West to halt further expansion of NATO this month. If the West insists on expanding this month and Russia is forced to take military measures, it means that they've reached the limit of tolerance. This can be used as a bargaining chip in negotiations. The final question, is whether the United States and NATO will sign such a treaty. On December 22, 2021, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace published a report on whether Russia and NATO could reach an agreement. The conclusion is that the kind of treaty Russia is requesting is challenging to achieve because it requires approval beyond the president's authority involving Congress and the Senate. Currently, the political divide in the United States even for bills proposed by the party in control, makes it difficult to pass such legislation. Therefore, even if the US government agrees to sign a treaty with Russia, it may not pass through the legislative process. Additionally, formal treaties require approval from all recognized member states in NATO. Any member state can veto the treaty, making it highly unlikely that such a treaty will be signed at this time. This is likely one of the reasons why Putin has taken action. The situation is complex, and it remains to be seen how it will unfold. These are just various pieces of information and analyses based on the reports available.